Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, economics and trade correspondent for The Economist in London. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. This week, we are going to talk about China's non-market economy status. On one level, this is a kind of legal, techie thing. It's embedded in the rules of the World Trade Organization and essentially the deal under which China joined the WTO. So the Chinese interpretation is that they should be treated as a market economy. Everyone else says no. But this is more than just a geeky legal thing. This is a massive deal. This one question could actually bring down the entire multilateral trading system. And if that isn't an enticing intro to a podcast, I do not know what is. Okie doke. So China is currently suing both the European Union and the US over this issue. Only the EU case is progressing at the moment. For some reason, the American one isn't. But essentially, the Americans are on the same team as the Europeans. They do not want the Europeans to lose. They're helping out. So you can think of this as China versus EU plus America. In the hearings of this China-EU dispute started in Geneva at the WTO on December 4th. But before we get into all the legal arguments, let's first talk about how we got here. So, some history. Now, before the WTO, we had the GATT. That used to be the biggest trading deal in town. And China was actually a founding member of the GATT back in 1948. But after the communist revolution, the government in Taiwan said that China would leave. Uh, Although, actually, officially, the government in Beijing never recognized this withdrawal. So on one level, China never left. But in 1986, China said, hey, members of the GATT, we would like to resume our status in this wonderful trade deal of yours. So after that, negotiations started in 1987, and they took a really, really long time. So it turns out the other members were not so crazy about China's human rights abuses. It was difficult. But eventually they got towards the finishing line, and it turned into this massive deal between the Americans and the Chinese. So essentially, President Bill Clinton, he made it a huge priority. He really wanted to get China in. So here he is talking in 1999 during the talks between China and the other members. Although we are not quite there yet, a fair WTO agreement will go far toward leveling the playing field for our companies and our workers in China's markets. It will commit China to play by the rules of the international trading system and bring China fully into that system in a way that will bring greater opportunity for its citizens and its industries as well. Sounds exciting. The Americans wanted a level playing field for their companies. And the Chinese government saw benefits too. So first you have, on the import side, the idea was opening up to trade would put competitive pressure on Chinese companies, these big state-owned enterprises, forcing them to become leaner, more efficient, and more competitive. Secondly, on the export side, the other countries, the existing members of the WTO, lowering their tariffs would make opportunities for Chinese firms to be able to sell out there in world markets. Now, as a side note, when I was at the WTO, I tried to actually figure out what tariffs these other countries were applying to China in the 1990s before it got into the WTO. Turns out, I don't think we really know. So that's maybe a fun project for some trade geeks out there to look into. If you find out, tweet at us. We'll tweet you back. So WTO membership meant that China would now be guaranteed the same tariffs as everyone else out there. But as we also discussed in an earlier episode with Nuno Lamao, in some cases, the tariffs themselves didn't change. What mattered was the new certainty, the fact that countries couldn't simply raise their tariffs willy-nilly against Chinese exporters meant benefits for China. 
In 2001, they finished negotiations. It was a massive, massive deal, a massive event. So the director general of the WTO at the time said that China's entry would take the WTO towards becoming a truly world organization. This was a big day for them. And actually, China made some pretty large commitments itself, certainly much deeper commitments than other developing countries before it. So they said, sure, fine, we'll cut our tariffs. We'll liberalize so that foreign companies can get better access into our market. We'll liberalize our banking system so financial services could get into our market. And we'll reform our state-owned enterprises to get rid of this hand of the state from our economy. And we'll do all this fine, and all you have to do is give us extra market access. But under the agreement, and the legal document is this thing called China's Protocol of Accession, the other members did leave themselves a special defense to slow down China's exports if they needed to. And it relates to one of our old friends, anti-dumping policy. Chad's favorite. Okay, so anti-dumping duties are tariffs that you're allowed to apply on other countries' exports if you think that they are too cheap. It's unfair competition. So just the kind of headline summary is that the way China got treated as a non-market economy meant that the other countries could apply higher anti-dumping duties on Chinese exports. And the Chinese did not like that. So just a bit of theory... Anti-dumping duties are supposed to correct the price of Chinese goods in America to the fair price. So then there's the question, well, what's the fair price? And the American authorities might say, well, the fair price is what these goods are sold for back at home in China. Or it might compare to what the costs are for those companies to produce those goods. So, you know, on the one hand, if the prices are really low, it could be because China is just super efficient. They could just be really, really competitive, and that's why it's cheap. But it could be because there is state intervention. It could be because they're getting subsidies, and it's unfair competition. Okay, so what China's market economy status meant that other countries could assume that essentially Chinese prices were unfairly low, that you couldn't compare the prices in America to the Chinese prices because there wasn't a market situation. So what they would do instead is they'd say, okay, well, to find out the fair price, we're going to look in third countries, in different places, to see what these things should be selling at. And in practice, they tended to find that, yeah, these things should be much more expensive. So, you know, maybe they'd look to Indonesian mushrooms when trying to find the fair price of Chinese mushrooms. The Chinese thought this was super unfair. They would say that mushrooms in Indonesia are produced in greenhouses. So of course, they're going to be more expensive than Chinese mushrooms. It's not that Chinese mushrooms are unfairly low. But under the terms of the deal, the Americans, the EU, they said, well, it's a deal. We can do this. So China didn't like it. But this were the terms of the deal that it signed up to when it joined the WTO in 2001. Now, after that, its economy was growing like crazy, 10 to 12 percent per year. Its exports were growing like crazy, too. And those exports were creating competitive pressure on industries in the rest of the world. And a lot of those industries didn't like it. And so what happened is we had these extra harsh anti-dumping duties where countries were allowed to treat China as a non-market economy. It became their favorite way to slow down those imports from China from coming in. As one example, immediately prior to China's WTO accession in 2001, the United States applied anti-dumping on only 2% of their imports coming in from China. But by 2016, this had increased to 9% of imports. Now, the U.S. isn't the only country doing this. Emerging economies did it too. India, Brazil, Argentina, and the European Union did as well. 
By 2016, using this non-market economy treatment for anti-dumping, 6% of imports from China into the European Union were subject to these kinds of import restrictions. As I said, China really hated this. It really wanted to be treated as a market economy, so these harsher duties would be lowered. During the Eurozone crisis, they actually offered the EU cash if it would only treat it as a market economy. It actually managed to persuade the Australians to give it better treatment as part of its free trade agreement. But for the most part, everyone else was like, nope, you're a non-market economy. And for the most part, China lived with it. But it did so because it thought the treatment was temporary. It thought that after 15 years, it was going to start to be treated like a market economy. So the 15-year deadline passed in December of 2016. But the United States and European Union, they didn't stop applying this non-market economy treatment to anti-dumping duties. Again and again, they've continued to say China is still a non-market economy, and so we shouldn't treat it like one. So the deadline loomed. I was there waiting, excited, what's going to happen? And what happened was the Chinese sued the EU and America at the WTO. Here's Mark Wu, a law professor at Harvard University, explaining the legal dispute. The question is what happens when those 15 years expired, as they did in December of 2016. China argues that it's automatically entitled to market economy treatment, whereas the Europeans and Americans argue that we simply revert back to Article 6 of the GATT, which continues to allow an investigating authority to treat a country as a non-market economy and to use surrogate pricing. What the Mark mentioned GATT Article 6, which is the older law relating to anti-dumping duties. The Chinese would say, no, no, we have a new version. It's called our accession agreement. One really important aspect of this legal dispute boils down to who has to prove that China is a non-market economy. So essentially, the American and European argument is that we can apply these harsh duties if we want if we can prove that you are a non-market economy and we are willing to prove that, we'll do it. That's the legal question. But the real fundamental underlying economic question is, is China a market economy or not? So China was supposed to do all this reform in exchange for that market access that all the other WTO members gave it. Did China actually reform its private sector? Here's China scholar Nicholas Lardy of the Peterson Institute. The private sector grew very, very rapidly. It became responsible for most of the growth of output, employment, and exports. For example, in the industrial sector, which is extremely important, the share of state companies is now down to around 20%. They have just faded away relative to private firms, which have been much more efficient and much more rapidly growing. So there has been a transformation. However, the government still does engage in industrial policy, particularly in the last five years. They've introduced a number of programs to support certain industries. Sometimes this support is available to private companies as well as state companies. And here's Mark Wu on that same question. Over the last two decades, the Chinese economy has undergone a dramatic transformation. What they've done is allowed the private sector and competition to come into a number of different industries. But in some ways, the Chinese economy still has this invisible hand of the state guiding it. The state continues to control the critical infrastructure, including most importantly, finance. And the party state continues to push this industrial policy that's guided from five-year plans. Albeit there's elements of market competition pocketed throughout, but there's still very much uh, everyone's operating in the shadow of the Communist Party. It can be really complicated to work out when you're in a market economy and not. Take the example of steel pipes. 
Now, in China's old days, there may be one giant state-owned company making all the pipes. Obviously, that's a non-market situation. Nowadays, it may seem like there's loads of competition, with maybe 500 Chinese companies selling in China and abroad. But what if all 500 of these companies are getting state-subsidized loans? Or they can access super cheap, hot-rolled steel, the key input from a state-owned enterprise. Or if they're given free land to build the plant, or they have to pay super low rent. What can look like competition among these 500 Chinese firms to an American or a European company doesn't look like competition. They can't get those cheap inputs. To them, it looks like unfair competition. And from that perspective, most economists today would agree that China still isn't really a market economy. So taking that specific example, it's easy to see how applying a judgment over an entire economy as big as China's would be really, really difficult. And even an economist would struggle to put in strict buckets, you know, this is a market economy. This is a entirely state-run economy. This is somewhere in the middle, some kind of state-subsidized capitalism. These definitions just get really, really hazy really, really quickly. So the EU is doing something quite interesting. So they're trying to move away from this broad list where countries get defined as market economies or non-market economies. They've been changing their methodology, their trade defense mechanisms, to essentially look at things on a case-by-case basis. I asked Cecilia Malmström, the EU Trade Commissioner, how their approach is changing. We are also changing the way we have our trade defense mechanisms, the, the methodology, and we're very close in finishing that exercise. It's been a long and difficult um, path with the Council and the European Parliament, but we're almost there and it will give us quicker tools, it will give us um, better uh, transparency, it will allow us to, to make reports on countries where there are distortions, for instance China, but it could be any country. The EU is changing its laws to set out criteria for when it can use different types of prices to calculate anti-dumping duties. So rather than call a country a market or non-market economy, what they're saying is that where significant distortions exist, they can use prices or costs one at a time in other countries to calculate these duties. It's worth pointing out that other countries are not happy about this. So countries like Russia are worried that they might suddenly get pulled in by this new methodology. And what the Europeans are doing with anti-dumping does parallel a little bit with what the Americans are doing under a different trade defense policy, which is countervailing duties. Those types of duties target subsidies more directly. In that case, what they do is they target the unfair prices input by input. So what the Americans are doing when they calculate financial subsidies, they examine the average interest rates across a bunch of countries that are like China. When they're examining an input like hot rolled steel, instead of looking at the Chinese price, they look at the world price. When they're wondering whether these Chinese companies are receiving rents that are way too low, they compare the rents of a factory that's in a different country like Thailand. And again, this gets down to a legal burden of proof thing, right? The the Americans didn't just go for countervailing duties right off the bat because it's complicated to work out all these inputs. They'd rather just go for the easy anti-dumping route where they can say, whatever, we don't have to prove it. We're going to use these different prices. That's right. And when they use those different prices, they could pull them all from one spot as well. They could just take it all the prices from India, whereas under this countervailing duty route, you have to pull prices from different countries, international markets. It actually requires a lot more work. Taking us out of the weeds, I think the bigger question is, how do you know when the market is operating? How do you decide whether a country is or isn't a market economy? So America, uh, in its legal arguments, is saying that there is historical precedent for this. 
back in the 1960s and 1970s when Poland, Romania and Hungary were acceding to the GATT, they're saying it was standard to use different prices when considering these economies. And as their economies changed, they got different treatment. When the facts changed, their treatment changed. But I think in all of this, the point remains that inevitably there is an amount of judgment in these decisions. Inevitably, there's an element of politics. In some cases, countries are given market economy status before they are fully up to the standards of an American or European economy. In other cases, it's the reverse. Even if you wanted to set out watertight definitions of a market economy or not, you really, really couldn't do it. It's too difficult. Is it some arbitrary numerical threshold of state companies? Would it be the amount of subsidies as a share of your total economy or the fraction of state-owned companies in, in the economy? It's, it's a nightmare. The EU is trying to answer the question on a case-by-case basis, but still, there's judgment in there. And, and I guess China's argument is that these rules, these criteria that the EU is basing their judgment of, they haven't been multilaterally agreed. Effectively, what they think the EU is doing is essentially unilaterally saying, we are going to treat these exports differently to these ones. And that violates the principle of the WTO that everyone should be treated the same. When things are vague, they are political. And China's argument is that this political decision has already been made. It was made 15 years ago, and everyone else is just breaking their promises. But then from the perspective of the rest of the world, they are hanging on to the one bit of leverage they have against China's massive and distorted economy. The rules may not easily define China's economy, but they also can't constrain it. China's economy has changed, barriers have emerged in ways that no one could have foreseen. And these anti-dumping duties, even though they may not be completely related, they're the only defense they have. The legal arguments in this dispute are going to take years to play out. The U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer has said that the outcome of this case is crucial for the future of the WTO. The Chinese, on the other hand, say that if they lose, then the system is going to lose all sense of fairness. So once again, here's Samaya's interview with European Commissioner for Trade, Cecilia Malmström, this time about these WTO disputes. The hearings are going on in Geneva as China is essentially suing Mm -hmm. the EU for the EU's treatment of China and trade defences. Do you see any risks of, of letting this process go through the WTO, making judges decide it rather than the politicians just agreeing what essentially is a political disagreement? Well, this is what we have agreed to do, and we knew China would challenge this. We are confident, and we've been working uh, with other partners, uh, including the US, so we have a very similar strategy here, that our new methodology is compliant with the WTO and with the the accession protocol of China. China is not a market economy, but we needed to change our methodology. We have done that in a non-discriminatory way, and I hope that the the independence of WTO and the, and the arbitrators there will, will recognize this. Whatever the judges decide, someone's going to end up being really, really angry. And then the worry is, what is the loser going to end up doing? Do they crash out? Now, China still has 90% of its exports to the United States that aren't subject to these anti-dumping duties. So the existing system is still worth a lot to them. How would they retaliate? If the Americans lose, what would President Trump do? Would he potentially pull the United States out of the World Trade Organization? Legally, there seems to be no easy way out of this. From my perspective... For everyone to continue to buy into the system, 
you need to have a political solution in a compromise where all of the countries walk away saying they have won something out of the final agreement. The thing I worry about is, given the political rhetoric, the sides are making it really, really difficult to reach a political solution, to make it seem as if everyone's a winner. Everyone's just lining up for this big, big fight, and the system looks pretty fragile. And that is the note on which I think we should end. So, uh, some acknowledgements. I would love to thank Mark Wu from Harvard Law School and Nick Lardy from the Peterson Institute. We will be tweeting out links to their research on the topic of China's economic transformation. And I would also love to thank Cecilia Malmström for letting me grill her earlier this week on the topic of China's non-market economy status. And I would like to thank Junie Joseph, a research analyst here at the Peterson Institute that I've had the pleasure of working with closely over the last year. Junie's helped me almost continuously update all of this anti-dumping and countervailing duty data against China to be able to put numbers on just how sizable an economic dispute this actually is. And that is all from Trade Talks. As always, please, please, if you are enjoying the podcast, tell your friends, your colleagues, your pets all about it. Don't keep the podcast to yourself. And if you have any specific feedback or ideas for future episodes, then do get in touch. I'm at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one, but two underscores. At trade underscore underscore talks. Because even though the multilateral rules-based trading system can't seem to handle it, there is more than one type of economy.